0: got To love that, I love Hail to the Chief, and we play a little more of it every week because people wrote in and said, Hey, we want to hear more Hail to the Chief, we want to hear more Bruce, we want to hear more perhaps of a special guest. Well, we got all of that for you today on the race next door. Hail to the Chief will play for somebody in the next few weeks when the Americans make their decision about who the next president of the United States will be. Will it keep on being Donald Trump, or will it be Joe Biden? Well, we're going to find out. November 3rd is election day, and if you believe a lot of people, it's going to take a few days before we really know who won. I'm still of a belief that we're going to know on November 3rd, or at least the night of November 3rd, early morning of November 4th, but who knows. Um, Let me quickly set the scene. We're 24 hours roughly away from the uh, final debate between the two contenders for the presidency, Trump and Biden. That will take place tomorrow night. In the meantime, Biden has been kind of holed up at his place in Delaware, prepping for the debate. That's normal actually for most presidential years where the election takes place and the contenders kind of huddle up in their homes or their offices, and they work over with their staff how they're going to do in the debate, how they'll try to challenge the other person, how they'll answer the other person's challenges. So Biden has been doing what's kind of expected in these days before a debate, especially the final one. Donald Trump, well, you know, he never does quite what's expected. He's been tromping around the country, swearing and staggering from one rally to another whipping up his troops, you know, these rallies, hardly any masks, little if any social distancing, super spreader events, a lot of people call them, and there's been evidence that in fact that is exactly what's happened, spreading the virus around. But it hasn't stopped Trump. He's still out there with his outrageous comments every day, capturing headlines with them. Yesterday, the last 24 hours, and who knows, it'll probably be old by the time we talk about it, But uh, in the last 24 hours, he's demanded that his attorney general, Bill Barr, throw basically throw them in jail, the Biden family, all of them. They're corrupt. They're the most corrupt family in the history of the United States. Something like that. That's the kind of thing Trump has been saying. But don't stop there. Throw Hillary Clinton in jail. Throw Barack Obama in jail. Throw them all in jail. This is unheard of you know, for the United States, for anywhere in the kind of free world, the demanding that you place my opposition, who just happens to be leading in all the polls, throw him in jail. But that's what Trump's been saying. Now, the other thing that is kind of out there in terms of the lay of the land are the polls. And all the polls, as just indicated, seem to favor Biden right now. Don't seem to favor, they do favor Biden. There's been a little tightening up in some of the, back, uh, the battleground states, but not a lot. The national lead, for whatever it's worth, is still around double digits, around 10 points, which is huge. It's a huge lead. So that's kind of the state of the play. Let's bring in Bruce from Ottawa, the Race Next Door's co-host. And Bruce last week was out there saying, Hey, this is all over. You know, it's all over, but the counting. It's done deal. Trump is cooked. You couldn't be any more out on the limb than Bruce was last week. There is no walking back from there. It's kind of like Lindsey Graham, way out there. So here we are, less than two weeks away from the election, Bruce. Are you just a tiny bit nervous?
1: Well, Peter, look, we're all way out on a limb. The world is out on a limb. So if you're not, if you're watching this election and you're not nervous, I don't know what glasses you're using to watch it, because I'm looking at it every day, and I wake up nervous, and I go to bed nervous. But it doesn't mean that I think that the outlook that I provided last week is wrong. I just feel like I want this to be over. I want the world to return to some greater sense of normalcy. I want to believe that America is what America has always presented itself to be. Um, so I'm gonna be nervous, and you can ask me every week and you should, uh, but I still don't think that um, this looks like looked like election that Donald Trump is positioned to win. And I say that in part because at every juncture in the election campaign, and certainly at every juncture in the last week, whenever Donald Trump has run into something hard and found that people resist what he's saying, Instead of doing what people normally do, who are sitting on top of, you by billion-dollar campaigns with plenty of smart advisors around them, which is to say, hey, that didn't work. What do you think would work better? Why don't we try something else? Instead, he does one of either two things. He goes, I think I better say that again. And I better say it in front of a bunch of people who are going to react to it with just so much enthusiasm that the rest of the country can look at that and go, these people are nutty. Or I'm going to change the channel and say something even crazier than the thing that got me into trouble yesterday, like, why doesn't my attorney general arrest my opponent? And why hasn't he done it by lunchtime today? And so that's the the campaign that Trump has been running. And every day I turn on the news like you do and all the panels, and, and I hear people say, well, here's what he should do, or here's what he might do, or here's what he could do that would be a little bit better than that. And at the end of those panels, what does everybody say? But he probably won't, because he's never shown any interest whatsoever in taking the route that looks like it more might be more successful, because usually that has some sort of vague implication that he did something wrong, or that something that, came out of his mouth was less than perfect. And I don't think he's able to say that. I don't think he's necessarily able to think that. So I kind of look at the debate tomorrow and the the rest of the campaign and say, look, Trump is most likely to beat Trump. And if Trump can't beat Trump, nobody else or nothing else can. And so I'm still kind of confident, but nervous as a cat.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, Let's get another professional opinion in on this as we bring in our special guest for tonight's res- race next door, and it's Jerry Butts. And if you know the name Jerry Butts, as you should, if you follow, follow politics at all in Canada. Uh, Jerry uh, was, of course, the principal secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, did two campaigns with, uh, with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, did a number of provincial elections in Ontario, has seen many debates over the, his time. And has held brief, different debate contenders uh, over the years. So he's great on two things: one, the debate, which we'll get to in a second; two, the kind of lay of the land right now, uh, with less than two weeks to go. Jerry, should uh, should Bruce continue to be nervous?
2: Well, I I, I think that um, people who care about Uh, Our neighbors to the south are going to be nervous until this thing is over, let's be honest. Um, All that said, I think having seen close campaigns and campaigns that are not so close from the inside, this does not feel like a close campaign to me. Um, Had you told me six months ago, Peter, that uh, uh, the states we would be talking about whether they were going to be red or blue at the end of the campaign were states like Arizona. North Carolina, Georgia, even Texas, some would dare to dream, as I know Bruce, who has a special affection for Texas, is no doubt dreaming. Uh, I would have said that's a campaign that hasn't gone very well for Donald Trump. So uh, I think it's really easy, and a lot of people who were embarrassed last time, a lot of really, really smart people who watch politics very closely and are normally right and accustomed to being right about things were proven wrong in the last campaign. And that sense of embarrassment has, I think, prevented a lot of people from seeing this campaign really clearly. And um, it's a very different campaign than the last campaign. Uh, Democrats have a very different candidate than they had in the last campaign. It's very different to run as an incumbent than it is as a challenger in the campaign. And, of course, uh, Trump drew an inside straight to win the presidency in the first place. He won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by a grand total of about 77,000 votes. And he won Pennsylvania by the smallest margin of any presidential candidate for either party in 175 years. So you put all that together and then stir in um, and. 10, 220,000 people dead of the pandemic in an election year with a cratering economy. And you got to believe that um, the incumbents' chances are not off. And that's what you're seeing reflected in the polls, which have not moved very much at all since the beginning of the pandemic.
0: You know, it's interesting because so many uh, journalists and analysts have been doing backflips to – by throwing in the caveats of 2016 and saying, you know, we can't call this over cause it's not over and anything could happen. And all, you know, all those, um, you know, phrases that pop up at a time like this, but Tim Alberta who writes for Politico in the United States and is, you know, a pretty well-respected analyst had a, um, a piece yesterday that was headlined. Um, are we overthinking this? He's done a lot of traveling around the country. He's watched what's, been happening. He's listened to Trump. He's listened to Biden. He's seen the pandemic figures, basically going running down the list of things you just mentioned, Jerry. And he says, we're overthinking this. It's pretty clear what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. Yeah.
2: I think, look, I think in general, people do overthink politics, Peter. Um, I'm, I'm from what I call the, the people are not stupid version, uh, school of politics. And um, I think that people are not stupid. I don't think people are stupid in the United States. I think that watching what's happening to their fellow citizens in this pandemic and comparing it to what, how it's gone in other places has not reflected well on the president. And, and you can um, talk till the cows come home on CNN about what the ad strategy is in North Carolina. It's not gonna change that basic macro truth of the campaign. So I I am one who believes in uh, big things, not small things in politics. And I think if you get the big things right, the small things usually take care of themselves. Biden's run a pretty good campaign, um, really good campaign. In fact, I think he's getting, his people are getting too little credit for the campaign they're running in what is a very chaotic environment. And I don't think Trump has run a very good one. So we are where we are.
1: One of the things I like about Jerry, I like a lot of things about Jerry, but one of the things I kindness towards people. And, and when he says, I think people aren't stupid, I I kind of tell myself, you know, I should be that kind. I should be always in that zone of people are not stupid. And then I got to tell you, I look sometimes at the data that tell me that there are people who, despite all of the evidence of what kind of a human being Donald Trump is, still say, give me that Donald Trump sign. Take off this awful mask. Uh, free me from the shackles of science that can protect my life it's hard for me to be as generous in handing out the smart not stupid uh products as jerry was and i admire him for it i'm going to try to do better but there is a certain part of me that wonders like some people maybe aren't as smart as other people are and i know that probably we're going to hear from people who, who think that that's obnoxious and and arrogant and I don't really care but uh, as I think about how I would prosecute this last little bit I think one of the biggest challenges for uh, for Biden is that I've been in campaigns where you know if you're running against an incumbent and they've done a pretty good job or they're not very obnoxious to voters and there's really not that many things you can stick them with and one of the problems that Biden's got is like well do I go in and say you know hey list this week we found that he paid Donald Trump paid more in taxes to China than he did to the United States. Or do I say he stood by and said, "Hey, let's lock some kids up in cages and now we can't find their parents." Or do I say he drove the deficit up to 3 trillion dollars? Or do I say he told us that the COVID pandemic was going to go away on its own and then 200,000 people died because he didn't do anything? Or do I say Yesterday he told his attorney general to get on with locking up his opponent. And he wanted his last opponent that he had to be locked up to. This is kind of a a litany of opportunity from a debate standpoint, the likes of which I don't think any of us have ever seen before. And one of the challenges I think for Biden, do I use any of that? Or do I just do I just kind of brush over those items and sort of remind people so that they go on their way and go yeah 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 there's really nothing else to see here but a disastrous term of office and we just have to get on with what we need to get on with so apologies to people who didn't like me saying maybe not everybody is smart um, but i felt like i had to kind of say that
2: First correction i i think it's an it's an interesting point in the context of the debate because You've prepared people for debates. First, I've helped on that front in different campaigns with different people as well. And it's always a particular challenge, right? That if there's more than one debate, each each of those debates has their own uh, particular challenge to it, and usually their own discrete objectives. In this debate, I don't think it's Biden's job to prosecute a case against Donald Trump. I think it's his job to. Um, try as much as possible, and it may be more possible given the muting capacity uh, of the host, which I'm sure lots of people used on their couches in the United States in the last uh, last days. It may be that easier for him to get a word in edgewise, but his role is to speak directly to people. You know, one of the common misconceptions I find in the way politics covered between the way, uh, the differences between the way politics Covered and the way it's practiced is the way debates are perceived, right? That reporters, journalists, analysts, pundits look at debates and they've got a checklist of things that the candidate needs to do to be seen to win the debate. And the most common is the knockout punch: who's going to have to
1: pull over, it didn't draw blood, you know Exactly. Exactly.
2: And it's different from the way, at least in my experience citizens watch debates, which is one of the few unfiltered attempts they get to evaluate these candidates, these men and women, without um, a script in front of them, without a pre-recorded message, that they actually have to sit, stand there, and convince them to vote for them. What am I going to do for you? Why should you vote for this guy or this gal and not the other one? And there's something... Even in this day and age of social media and prepackaged politics, there's something about the crackle of that live interaction that can be decisive for people. And um, I don't think it's Biden's job to sound like uh, Jake Tepper on CNN or uh, any other pundit. I think it's his job to look into the living rooms of the United States of America and say,
0: we can do something about this if we pull together. Um, Yeah. On behalf of journalists everywhere, let me enter (laughs) this discussion. as one who, of course, never in all the debates I covered ever used the phrase knockout punch (laughs) much (laughs) that uh, for sure. That is something that journalists look for. There's no doubt about it. They're looking for the clip. They're looking for the moment uh, in a debate or the series of moments. And, But, uh, you know, I, I will agree with you in the sense that in most debates, those things never happen. And so you're left with what else does happen. And some of it's a lot more interesting than as journalists, we tend to give it credit. Now, in terms of tomorrow night, I would say I would totally agree with you in Biden. He's got to stay. He's not looking. He doesn't need a knockout punch. He needs to come away from that, at worst, tied. You know, at best, he wins the debate. He doesn't want to lose the debate. He doesn't want to give any sense of momentum, I would argue, to the other side at this point. Um, but he he doesn't he doesn't need a knockout punch. Trump actually needs a knockout punch, or a series of knockout punches, or a debate where it looks like he clearly has won through the skill of his mind. So let's set that aside for a moment, and and or a knockout punch of some sort where he catches Biden totally off guard or Biden falls for the trap of saying something wrong or stupid, or something's going to get him into trouble. And I, I raise all that because some of the people closest to Trump in terms of debate prep, people like Chris Christie, the former governor of uh, New Jersey have been arguing that Trump needs to take the advice that Joe Biden gave him in the first debate, which was shut up, man. But for a different reason, he should shut up to allow biden to talk which could promote some kind of gaffe on the part of uh, on the part of biden that's their argument to trump now whether he'll ever listen to them or not i don't know cuz he seems to be his own best advisor according to him and um, but that advice is lay back let the guy talk because if he talks the more he talks the more likely it is he's going to get himself in trouble you both, as you say, prepped people for debates. Is that a is that a strategy that should be considered the, this moment, or because it's the last gasp, this could be the last big thing of the campaign, uh, barring some other you know October surprise. Um, well, I, go ahead. I'm really
1: keen to hear what you have to say about this. I I kind of look at it from the standpoint of this, the the. Critical issues in helping prep Trump are so different from any of the scenarios that I've been involved in or anything else that I've seen before, and and here's why. I mean, I think the the central question is: you tell him to be himself, which is usually the advice that you want to give to a politician, um, because you want what Jerry was alluding to that moment of authenticity where people say i got a glimpse into the soul of this person so do you say be yourself or do you say be somebody else and every iota of evidence is saying be somebody else be not yourself um, but he doesn't do that and he doesn't seem to be on receive for that message and he seems to have fired all the people who I might have sat around him and said, you know, maybe don't be that version of yourself or find some other nice way of saying you are not working with those middle ground voters who are saying there's too much chaos. You're too reckless. You're too disruptive. You're too mean. You're too nasty. You're too all of that. And so I don't know, frankly, what you would uh, what you would do with a situation where be yourself is so obviously the wrong answer. Uh, strategically and be somebody else is so obviously not uh, available as a conversation starter. Uh, I do know that um, if I'm Joe Biden, I would have to make a gap a minute and they would have to be way bigger gaps than the gaps that we've seen from Trump uh, in order to make people go, you know, the way he said that kind of you know, it annoyed me, or it wasn't that clear, or it seemed like he was a little bit slower off the uptake. And and so I'm going to overlook all of the things that I won't run through that a couple of minutes ago, and I'm going to go back to Trump because, uh, you know, Joe just seemed like he lost his step or something like that. And so I think that question going into the room, if you're on the Trump side, is how do you organize it so it doesn't become a worse disaster than the last one and a worse disaster than it and it could be. And if you can get to a place that's better than that, great. But the starting point is everybody's going to want to be in the room because they're going to see this as the last showdown uh, in the center of town. Uh, the big event that is going to uh, help define the last chapter of their political career if they think they're going to lose this election. And I think most of the people around them believe that Trump is going to lose that election, this election. Uh, But as many people as want to be in the room, almost nobody should be in the room. It really works better when there aren't five people deciding that they have to kind of disagree and kind of agree with each other so that the candidate hears too many different sounds and ends up not being sure. Because usually at that point, you're talking about people who are pretty articulate, who are pretty good at marshalling an argument, and who know that the nature of the thing is if you just say, oh, I agree entirely with what that other person said, that, that next time maybe you're not going to be invited into the room. So there is that dynamic. It's better if there's almost nobody in the room. And then there's two other things to avoid. Um, well, there's many other things, but two that come to mind for me. One is that the person who says, um, Mr. President, I brought the stacks of binders of policy information so that we could just kind of go through them and refresh ourselves and what our position is on on testing for COVID and what our uh, our jobs plan is and, and where we're at with that nuclear arms deal that we said two weeks ago that we were going to negotiate with Russia before the end of the election. That's a terrible idea. Trump is not going to be any good at talking about policy at that level. But there are often people who say that that's what we should do. And then the other one, I'm going to use a golf metaphor here because I know that both of you guys like golf, and, as do I is that you don't want a caddy in the room saying, here is a seven iron, I know you can hit it 220 yards. (laughs) You don't want an advisor telling you to try to do something that you cannot do. You want people to recognize what your range of motion, your skill range is, and to work within that. And often you will have people who say, I thought of a great line and you should use it, and it feels good when I say it to myself, and you can deliver it really well. And sometimes you just need to know that no, you probably can't deliver that. That's not in your wheelhouse. So there's just some thoughts that I have. But as think say, I'm not really keen to hear what Jerry has to say about his well, well,
2: I'd uh, i see your golf analogy and raise you one of my favorite ones, which is that it's easier to make corrections from the tee than the woods. Okay. And um, at this point in the campaign,
1: <laughs> one
2: of the can one of the campaigns has hit a pretty Straightforward, long uh, drive right down the middle of the fairway, and the other one has shanked it into the woods. Um, and we're not really sure that they've found their ball yet. So uh, I think that they have to, you know, uh, situational awareness is always an important thing in politics and in life. It's certainly important in debate. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the common mistakes that I've encountered in politics is people overestimating how much regular folks dislike their opponents, right? Or, and and Chris Christie's advice to to President Trump to just hand Joe Biden the microphone and let him talk and people will see uh, the, the person we know, the incompetent person we know Joe Biden to be. Sounds like the crappiest advice I've ever heard in my entire life. (laughs) Um, I remember in the 2015 campaign, someone joking that uh, all Trudeau had to do in the first debate was show up with his pants on, probably the wrong week to make that joke on a podcast, but, um, uh, and he'd win the debate. And a lot of this is about expectations management going into the debate. I think that people, uh, you know, ironically, I think because of Trump's performance in the first debate, the bar is a lot lower for him coming into this one than it was going into the first one. And sometimes these things create their own weather and they can have their own uh, uh, momentum attached to them. So I think it's going to be pretty easy for Trump to be seen to have done a lot better in this debate than he did in the first debate. So what was his problem in the first debate? In my view, um, he was kind of rude. He was super rude. And a lot of these people who we can argue over their relative intelligence sometime over a beer of Bruce, but, you know, I've seen this in focus groups over the years. The last thing that people like to see is their candidate being um, a jerk to the other person. It's one thing to stick it to them on issues. It's another thing to, you know, criticize the guy's son for having a drug addiction. Uh, and to talk over him while he's trying to tell the story of his war hero, other child, who is no longer with us. And you forget that, again, getting back to the point that the folks at home look at these things a little differently than analysts do. Who does that? If you're sitting at home thinking about uh, whether you're going to support this guy again, and you see him uh, run down the other guy's kids, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, so
1: Peter, uh, your turn. What do you think, Peter, <laughs> after 50
2: took. years of studiously remaining uh, uh, neutral and uh, unbiased? What do you think is going on in our uh, – to
0: well, the public?
2: I, I so. will
0: definitely try to answer that, but I first want to – uh, thank you both for the um, analogies you threw on the table, especially the golf ones. And, uh, and, and and as the guy who's been in the woods after shanking it off the tee, I know how hard that can be uh, to recover from that position. It's not like I was uh, my old friend, my good friend, uh, Raina Titian, the former governor general, who often used to shank it into the woods. Uh, but as GG, he had an RCMP escort and, I can't believe the number of times we went into the woods and we found the ball. And not only did we find it, it was sitting up pretty with a clear shot to the green. Um, and that that's the kind of thing that helps to be the GG and have the, an RCMP escort. Um, the other image that struck me <laughs> with, with a sense of a smile was Bruce's image of somebody walking into Trump's room with a, a arm full of binders of, briefing notes on all the various topics Um, because that'll never happen, right? Of course it'll never happen because he doesn't read binders of briefing notes on, on any subject. Um, I mean, at least Ronald Reagan was clear about his position. He wanted everything on one page and no more than one page and it worked for him. He would actually study that page and he'd know what to say for a page worth of comments. Um, This guy, doesn't read somebody. I heard somebody the other day say, what are they going to do for the Trump library? You know, each president has a library after they've been in office, they get to build a library with their name on it. You know, then this will be the Donald J. Trump library, but what'll be in it? You know, like, will there there be any book? Will there be any books in the library? I mean, what does he read? You know, there've been some famous interviews where he's been trapped on, on on, uh, on what he uh, allegedly, or what he was claiming that he'd read, and it turned out, of course, that he hadn't. Um, anyway, I digress. What was your question? Who's going to win?
1: Oh, your advice. What would
2: you tell Donald Trump and Joe Biden to do? you got to kind of step into that role of political advice. Well, look, now. it's
0: a very different than it was at the first debate, whenever that was. What was that, about three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago? Then yeah. everything was possible for Trump. But he, he ended up doing what most incumbent presidents have done in recent memory. He kind of bombed on the first debate. Um, Obama bombed. George Bush bombed. Ronald Reagan bombed in that uh, his 84 debate, first debate. Um, but he was able to recover uh, by the second debate. Now, This guy cancels the second debate. He he basically chickens out of the second debate. Now it's just the third debate, and everything is resting on it, and there's only 10 days to go by the time this thing happens, 10, 12 days. So you're not going to change a 73-year-old guy who's got his back to the wall, and he's got less than two weeks to go. I think you say to him, pick the topics you're most comfortable with. We'll give you any information you want. And you got to go out there and you got to deliver the moment of your your life. because At this point, you have nothing more to lose because you're going to lose. You have everything to gain if you perform well. So perform on the ground that you know best. It's too late to teach this guy something. He's going to be, he is what he is right? Um, and I, I, that's a a very different approach than I would have taken a month ago going into that debate, but on this one tomorrow night, he's got to be on ground that he's comfortable with. And if he wants to go crazy, then he's going to go crazy. He's gone crazy throughout this campaign and he still has 40% of the vote, right? Which is perhaps the most remarkable thing about this campaign that he still has his base, who he's been catering to and sucking up to for four years. He still has them. He's not going to lose them tomorrow night. If he's going to gain some votes, he's going to have to figure out how, how he does that. Stop catering to the base. Start catering to those, especially those Republicans who've abandoned you. So hit on the key areas that brought them on your side initially. Um, but I think... You know, I, I think that's the, the best I could uh, offer advice. I'm not the, the kind of pros that, that you guys are, but I just think it's, you know, it's too late in the game to suddenly What do you tell Joe scale. Biden I tell Joe Biden, that, that I, I see the biggest problem for Joe Biden. I actually do have some sense of agreement with Chris Christie, who, uh, you know who I've occasionally been a fan of and occasionally not been a fan of but here's here here's why i would say that argument works these this debate like the first one has these 2 minute holes that the candidates are supposed to fill themselves now 2 minutes as you both know is not 10 seconds you've longer got, than a sentence yeah it's longer than a sentence it's a complete thought it's a couple of thoughts and if you're put on the spot about whatever it Maybe health insurance, or the pandemic, or uh, negotiations with Russia, or whatever the the issue may be. You you've actually got to think that through how you're going to spend those two minutes, and you've got to pull it off, or you could sound like a, a, a blubbering fool, and that's what Trump didn't allow him to do last time. We'll see if he does this time because of you know maybe he'll have a different strategy. The microphones are going to be muted for whatever that's worth. That's not going to stop Trump from shouting at him if, if that's what he wants to do. Um, yeah. but I think those, those two minute holes in the debate, and there'll be a dozen of them, um, are, are, are pretty important for Biden. And I bet you that's what they're drilling him on. They know all the subject areas. So he will know what he, he needs to say.
2: Well, there's, there's an interesting, uh, uh another golf analogy when we'll turn this into the golf Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: bump the view, <laughs> bump, the listeners.
2: Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> well, well, it's one thing to hit, a uh, eight foot putt on the practice green, right? But Joe Biden's standing over one to, uh, win the masters right now yeah. and you can get the ifs at those moments. So.
0: The yeah, Bru- Bruce nice. does that. Bruce does that all the time. Remember him getting the yips over a two-foot putt in Scotland a couple of years ago that would have won him the right. Scotland Cup, but he got the yips and he was he was way wide on the putt. It was it was embarrassing. We felt bad for him. And I uh, can
1: three putt that eight footer to win if I'm so wide. It's kind of how I see the numbers, and I am good at three putting that eight footer. Boy, of experience, but. You know, I think there's just a couple of other things that um, that I just wanted to mention that are occurring to me here. One is that if if there's one thing that's different for Trump heading into this is that uh, we've seen a lot of signs in the last 72 hours that uh, his party, not to say Fox News, but his party is fed up uh, with him and they're worried that his behavior is putting more of them in jeopardy and that they need to survive him if they can, and he needs to not be allowed to do more damage to their uh, candidacies than he already has. And this is particularly relevant in the Senate, where there are maybe eight Senate seats, which are uh, Republican held seats now, and which are in varying degrees uncertain uh, in terms of how they're gonna fall. And these people have had to uh, stand by, they haven't had to, they've chosen to, I should say, stand by Trump, not criticize Trump, accept his threats, uh, accept the intimidation that they would be primary within their own party. Um, and the deal that they were making was, what, they would remain kind of un, uh, unattacked by Fox News, uh, on the inside somewhat, riding the coattails of Donald Trump. But those coattails look pretty shabby right now. And these people have to think about themselves or they will think about themselves. And, and I think that how Trump performs tomorrow, if he's not better than he was, and I kind of, I'm with you, Peter, like if, if, if being a jerk is what won him 2016 and what has kept him able to do what he's been doing for four years, then he's going to go in tomorrow night and he's going to be a jerk again because it's the kind of the natural emotion that he's got. And it's kind of, uh, he doesn't really know that it's a losing formula. He sees evidence that he's not winning, but he blames it on everybody else. And so I kind of feel like those people are just standing by looking at this as Senate candidates and they're going, I may have to put more distance between myself and him. Uh, if he continues to act like this. Chris, before you go on to your next point, can I just make a point about that? Cause you know,
2: there's a special place in political health for people, uh, who, who do that sort of thing like, are you mean you to tell me if you if you're Senate if you're Ben Sass that the scales have fallen from your eyes about Donald Trump that these uh, Republicans who have supported him through thick and thin every step of the way while they were um, you know putting kids in cages and they were uh, doing all of the things that you listed earlier. What has changed in the last two weeks? The only thing that has changed in the last two weeks is that they now now have grave doubts about his impact on their own electoral fortunes, right? So there are a lot of reasons that people are turned off by politics. One of them is this kind of unseemly, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, flag of convenience flying that you
1: see. Wasn't there a senator from Texas uh, just this week who said, well, I broke with Trump on the <laughs> deficit and this and that and the other thing, but I did it privately. Well, because <laughs> I'm a gentleman. they are entitled to wonder whether or not that's of any particular value to them. Uh, I take your point. I agree with you completely on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, t- politics is a team sport. You're either on that team or you're not, and you don't get to go out and say, well, I didn't agree with that play politics. Games ago, when we lost to the Patriots,
0: nobody loses yeah. to the Patriots anymore. They they lost their best player and let him go to a city that'll now win the Super Bowl and host the Super Bowl at the same time.
2: Oh, you're not another Patriots fan, Peter? Please tell
0: me. No, I'm a Tom Brady fan, so I'm oh. a Bucc- I'm a Buccaneers guy now. Taking <laughs> the underdog. <laughs> Listen, well, do think. That yeah, Biden has to go in tomorrow night and just has to stick with the basic message of a better human being with a better plan. And I think that's, that's what uh, people... And that seems to be his, uh, you know, his, his one of his closing arguments in the ad that he took. I don't know whether you are watching the World Series last night, but the ad, the 60-second ad that the Democrats obviously spent a lot of money on putting together and, okay. and buying time on the World Series was terrific. Sam Elliott asked. Uh- Sam Elliott yeah. doing the voiceover. Yeah. I had to tell him, no, I couldn't do it because I was obligated to the bridge daily here, but Sam did it. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he did it for free, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's a great, great uh, ad and I'm sure yeah. they've got a parade, more of them, uh, yeah. coming out. I mean, I, I, I we're going to wrap this up and Jerry, you've been terrific on this and given us lots of, lots of things to to think about and lots of challenges to Bruce, which is great. You know, we, we, like, <laughs> we like that, but, um, I want you to uh, you know to clo- close this out by pointing us in a, in a different direction, uh, on a topic that we're going to try and spend some time on, uh, next week. But, um, because we just talked about the Sam Elliott ad, uh, have you ever seen a campaign like this with the kind of, um, TV influence that, that third parties have had. And I'm thinking especially of the Lincoln Project, but they're not alone, but their ads have been, you know, the turnaround time on them has been incredible. I guess that helps when you don't have to get the approval of everybody in the hierarchy of a campaign. You just do it the way you want to do it and put it out there. But have you ever seen anything like this before?
2: No. And, and uh, um, in my work we track this stuff very closely and the numbers are simply eye-popping i think that the last estimate i saw that at all levels because americans are of course electing everyone from presidents mayors to uh, all levels and orders of government um there's going to be 6.7 billion dollars spent on advertising in this election cycle including uh, almost a quarter of a billion dollars on the north carolina senate seat alone so um, those who lament in our own country the influence of money on politics, uh, man, these numbers are are just astonishing. To, get, to give you a, a frame of reference, in the 2015 campaign, which was extraordinarily long, as you'll all remember, 78 days uh, in Canada, we spent $42 million on the entire campaign. Everything from advertising to the leaders tour to... Uh, the modest wages we paid staff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in the United States this time, man, it is just beyond belief how much money is being spent.
0: And impact wise, especially the, the, the kind of third party ads, the, the, the not. Well, the- I think uh, it's, a great,
2: it's a great question. Of course, we obviously won't know the final answer to that until uh, the election's over. But I think. I think at a certain level, the airwaves are so saturated with political messaging, in in particular in swing states, it's almost comical, it's self satire, uh, that it's hard to believe that any of it has uh, the the law of diminishing returns probably kicks in fairly fairly quickly. But I do I do think that there are some particular groups. Uh, there are lots who who've made fortunes in California in the attention economy who know how to get our attention because they develop companies like Twitter um, who are investing a lot of money. One, there's, there are a couple in particular that are being funded by California billionaires that I'm looking at really closely because they claim to have uh, split the atom on how to move votes in the last two weeks of the campaign. Uh, one of them is on the Democratic side and one's on the Republican side. I won't give them the free advertising Peter, but any of your listeners can look them up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical. I think the campaign's overall messaging, discipline, consistency, and prosecuting that message and finding a way to freshen it up, uh, to describe in a, in a memorable way, momentum toward the end of the campaign is a way to close the deal.
0: Well, as I said and I know Bruce joins me in this uh it's been great to to have you with us uh, Jerry on this well, good to be here Peter and we look forward to uh you know touching base with you again I I got a feeling this story uh, no matter what happens on November 3rd it ain't going away anytime soon uh, it's going to be a very interesting next few months if not next few years and Bruce as always uh great to talk to you and we look forward yeah, to talking to you I, again
2: I really appreciate it and if I could just Guys, both of you stay healthy and well, and I hope your families are uh, are very well.
0: Absolutely, and the same to yours. Um, and for uh, Bridge Daily listeners, The Race Next Door will have a special edition on Friday, so the day after the debate, and with another special guest to kind of talk about what happened and what difference, if any, that it will make. But for now... That's The Race Next Door on The Bridge Daily, the podcast within a podcast. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.